every generation there is a chosen podcast. It alone will analyze the subtext, the allegory, and the clever Whedon-esque dialogue. It is Conversations with Dead People. to Conversations with Dead People. I'm your host, Paul Smith, and each week, give or take, I'm joined by guests from the worlds of fandom and academia, authors and educators, to discuss two to four episodes of Joss Whedon's critically acclaimed series, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and its spin-off series, Angel. I've been a fan of both shows since their original runs, and I've spent many years talking to lots of people about them, but I've somehow never done a full rewatch, so this is going to be my first time going back through all the way from the beginning. I am familiar with the story and where everything's going, but my guests are likely going to be educating me at least as much as they will be our listeners, probably more so. Uh, And today, talking with me, is Michael Adams, author of Slayer Slang, a Buffy the Vampire Slayer lexicon, as well as In Praise of Profanity, which has absolutely nothing nothing to do with the Buffyverse, but that's a title that I'm more than happy to promote. So um, there you go. Check that one out, too. Michael, thank you so much for joining me. How's it going? It's going very well. Thanks, Barbara. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, thanks for being here. Um, so why don't you give us just a, a brief rundown of like what's your history with Buffy when, when you first became aware of it and, and what inspired you so much to be to, to write about it? Well, it was accidental. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a, an obsessive lexicographer. That is, I'm always collecting words and, 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 and new meanings of words uh, so that I can do something scholarly with them. And I keep paper or note cards next to the table uh, that are on the table next to the sofa so that when I'm watching television or something, I can, I can jot things down. And I remember it was kind of a pathetic scene. I was single. It was a lonely evening. I had my, I had my dinner balanced on my knee as I was, as I was uh, uh, surfing through channels, and I landed on the WB, which, believe me, I'd never heard of before. Uh, it's a new network, and it was showing stuff that, uh, didn't naturally attract me, but I landed on it exactly when uh, uh, Buffy said, love makes you do the wacky. Nice. And I thought, uh, and, and honestly, I know that we're going to be talking about uh, when she was bad today, and she does use that sentence in that episode. I think this was a different episode where she says it uh, uh, again because Willow says something like, huh? And Buffy responded strange stuff. And I thought, this is perfect. This is a show that gives me new slang, but glosses it for me at the same time. It really <laughs> my labor. So I wrote that down. And there were a couple of other items in that, in that episode. And, and so I thought I would, I would watch it again. And uh, I was lucky. I don't mean to offend any listeners by saying this, but most, most people who love Buffy will nonetheless... Uh, admit that there were some moments in the first short season that were a little rocky. Some of those episodes are probably not the strongest episodes ever made. And I came in uh, in the fall of 1997, so I was watching um, uh, some really more polished episodes that were on the arc. 
uh, to begin with, the long arc of the show. And so I was drawn in after I'd watched a couple of episodes and only saw the first short season uh, when it started to play in uh, in reruns. Wow. All right. So, um, and out of that, yeah. out of that, out of that came a conference paper. I mean, that, that that's part of the story too. It, it makes me sound like a very lackadaisical person, which I'm not. <laughs> you know, I was sitting around with a deadline for uh, uh, abstracts to be submitted to the American Dialect Society. When you're like, oh, what what would I submit? And then I thought, oh, that Buffy stuff. I could do that. I could call it Slayer slang, right? And there was my title. So it was a conference paper, and then it was a couple of articles, a two-part article in the in the magazine Verbatim, which unfortunately no longer publishes. And then out of that out of that came the book. So there was a lot of there was a lot of serendipity involved in in my latching on to Buffy and taking it as far as I did. Well, that's that's awesome. Out of curiosity, how did that uh, initial paper presentation go over? Well, now I'm just going to sound like I'm, I'm bragging, uh, but uh, you know, sometimes those sessions don't attract very many people. You have a pretty good room if there are 30 uh, listening to your paper, um, and uh, suddenly there were a hundred and some people uh, piling <laughs> into. Uh, the, the conference, which was astonishing to lots of people. I mean, there were other people on that panel who thought, wait, are these people come to hear me? But no, I have to say, they did not come to hear those other papers. They came to hear the first paper, really, uh, about Buffy the Vampire Slayer uh, that had ever been given. And that tells you something about the early power of the show. This would have been in, um, oh gosh, in, uh, it would have been January of 1999. So at that point already, there were enough people at a meeting of the Linguistic Society of America who were interested in Buffy that they could overpopulate um, a, a session. It, it does not surprise me that there was that big of a response. I, I, I wouldn't have been surprised if you had said, like, uh, fellow academics had sort of turned their noses up at that. That's what I was expecting. But uh... Oh, no, but, you know, there are different stripes of academics, and it's possible, though I don't want to... Uh, you know, paint with too broad a brush that folks in literature might have turned up their noses at TV or the seriousness of televisual art compared to high literary art. That often ends up uh, in media schools, but not English English departments or comparative literature departments. But but linguists are a little bit different. Linguists have an ear for catchy language, and and uh, I think some people had already realized that the show was unusual in its use of language, and they wanted to hear hear somebody talk about that in a focused way. That's awesome. So um, how long after that was the book? Well, the book was published in 2003, so not very long after. And, and uh, uh, Oxford University Press, uh, in a stroke of marketing genius that I'm sure isn't typical <laughs> of a university press, uh, uh, published it, released it uh, just as the series was ending. So uh, it made people a little bit more aware of the book, I think, because uh, uh, a week ago they were already feeling Buffy nostalgia, and it was a good reason to go out and, and get the book. Perfect. Almost as if you planned it that way. Well, somebody planned it that way. It wasn't, it wasn't <laughs> I. It wasn't <laughs> I. I remember, I remember feeling this. I mean, I could criticize uh, Slayer Slang uh, on several fronts, but the one thing that, that has always bothered me is that because of the production schedule for the book, because the press wanted to bring it out in May of 2003, all of the material really had to be in in the fall of 2002. And that meant that uh, half of season six uh, and season seven are really not represented 
in the fall uh, because uh, it was at the in, in the printing presses and, and going to the warehouses and, and all of that uh, in the last uh, part of season seven. Have you considered doing a revised, updated edition? I have, but I have been unable to convince Oxford University Press to to uh, allow me to do that. Oh, so man. I'll, no, I know. I'll keep nagging them. You know, my case uh, to them, which I guess was not awfully compelling, was that you know we knew so little in, in 2001, 2002, when I was writing the chapters that come before the glossary in that book about things like fandom or about the way television would develop um, not precisely because of Buffy, but in you know the years following Buffy, where Buffy had an influence and where Joss Whedon was still writing for TV, and uh, you know we can we can take in hindsight a much more intelligent view uh, of subjects like that, and especially the role that fandom played in uh, the use and dissemination and development of stuff that originated on the show. Uh, and uh, I would really love to dig into that more than I was able to you know, knowing as little as I did at the time. I mean, I knew so little that, uh, and it was so unfamiliar with the web that when I was lurking in, in uh, posting boards and chat rooms trying to find out what fans were, were doing with the language of the show, I didn't even know what the alphabetisms and, and, and acronyms meant. I had to go to a fact page to find out uh, <laughs> LOL and ROTFLMAO uh, for at the time because it was not my discourse, you know, it was such a new thing. And some people were immersed in web culture and obviously that ended up being part of Buffy fandom. Uh, you know, it was right there on the edge of people uh, devoting themselves to a web-based fan culture, but but it was all new to me. So it was, it was uh, I, I, I am admitting that now, I probably wouldn't have admitted it out of embarrassment about, about 10 years ago. But. Oh, for the more innocent days when we didn't know what LOL was. That's right. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Michael, thank you again for being here. And uh, so now uh, it's time for the dreaded spoiler warning. I have to give one of these at the top of every show. So uh, for listeners who aren't aware, Conversations with Dead People is not a typical rewatch and review podcast. We're going to be exploring the plots, characters, themes, and obviously language of each episode in depth and within the context of the series as a whole. That means spoilers and probably lots of them. So I recommend if you haven't already watched Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel the Series all the way through at least once that you press pause on this podcast now and go do that. Obviously, you're going to get much more out of these discussions if you've actually seen the shows that we're discussing. So please go and watch. We'll still be here when you get back. And now, with all of that taken care of, Michael, if you're ready, let's go to work. So tonight we're talking about, we're kicking off uh, Season 2. Uh, we just uh, wrapped out all of our discussions for the, as you said, Michael, the short Season 1. Uh, we're heading into Season 2, which will be a full 22, I think it's 22 episodes in Season 2. And tonight uh, we're talking about the first two episodes, so that's 201, When She Was Bad, and 202, Some Assembly Required. So let's get right into this, shall we? The uh, first thing I noticed straight off the bat is that David Boreanaz finally gets to join the opening cast credits. Right. So, I mean... The big event. Yeah. yeah that's, no, he's no longer a visiting vampire. He's, he's, he's a resident. That's right. That's right. Um, and, um, Michael, at the top you mentioned... Um, 
uh, what was it? Love makes you do the wacky. Is that what it was? Uh, yeah. which, which is a line that's in one of these. I think it's in when she was bad. Uh, but actually, I think it's in, uh, I think it's in some assembly required. Okay. Okay. Um, oh yeah, sure enough. Scrolling down here. Uh, but yeah, th so these two episodes do actually give us, um, like when she was bad is where we get, um, that's the episode that gives us Bitka. Yes. Which is a classic. And also, uh, Cordy gets the whole spank your inner Moppet line. Yep. So yep. at this point, I think, so this, these episodes would have aired before you started watching, but at this point in the series, um, do you see like how much of the distinctive Slayer slang do you see has already begun to establish itself? It's, it's pretty remarkable how, how much of it comes out early. And, and uh, one of the uh, tendencies of Slayer slang is to uh, take uh, nouns and make them into adjectives with the Y suffix. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and, and when she was bad has one of the classic moments of that from Bobby, who is the biggest Y suffix around the show. Uh, it's, it's one of her, uh, quippy tendencies and and remember she's she's come back uh, from summer vacation with her father in LA she's been beating herself up for a long time uh, about uh, having confronted the master having died um, now she's behaving badly to her friends uh, and uh, she's talking to Giles about it and Giles said you have to stop punishing yourself um, uh, it's not or it, it's not the pointer that's beside the point I can't remember exactly what he said and, and she she responds, it's entirely pointing. <laughs> yes, yeah. Was, and, and that's and that's that little twist. Um, that's a Joss Whedon written episode, and that that's that little twist that he puts on it. It's not just making an adjective out of a noun the way the noun usually means, right? It's taking the unusually uh, Y suffixed form um, over the more uh, the more obvious one. So we don't use we don't use pointy in standard American English to mean. Um, full of significance or extremely relevant that he saw that opportunity and took it. And it's not the first Y suffix word in the show by any means, but at the beginning of season two, you can see how that, that slang is consolidated. It's also the episode that gives us Undead America, which is a great um, comic moment as well as a great, you know, it's, it's Buffy's comment on, uh, on political correctness. She uh, is uh, uh, being a little scornful uh, toward the lurking angel and she calls him a vampire, and she said, or is that an offensive term, um, should I say, undead American? Uh, and uh, it's bound to bring a smile to one's face, right? Yeah. Um, I was surprised to, so I'm old, but um, I was surprised that that sort of, kind of pseudo-mocking tone that she uses towards uh, like political correctness I, I was surprised to be reminded that that goes all the way back to that. That's like 20 years old. <laughs> that goes all the way yeah. back to 1997. Well, of course, and it goes back for that. I mean, that was a, a, a political correctness is a term of the left that comes straight out of communism, frankly. And, and, yeah. uh, you know, it's supposed to point to all the complacent people who just did what they were told to do that silent majority of the Nixon era. But right at that point, when we're out of the eighties and into the nineties, it's been, uh, appropriated by the political right uh, to talk about all of those feel-good things we try to do with language and, and symbolism. And I'm being a little mocking there because I hate the term. Right? I hate it because uh, people are usually not just being politically correct, but they're, they're acting from some more serious 
social motive, and I don't like to hear that mocked or, or dismissed. But having said that, it's undoubtedly part of American discourse at the time to make fun of the tendency, and Buffy picks, picks up on that. In, in um, some assembly required, uh, too, she uses, uh, she, she had, lets out with a pathetic much at one point. I can't remember exactly where it occurs in the, in the episode. When, when uh, she has to jump down into the grave to open the casket. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so uh, um, that is not the first instance of that much either because Cordelia has already used it in the, in the first season. I think it's come up a couple of times then. But, uh, but it, it, I think it demonstrates, although I don't know with what assurance Whedon was writing this stuff anyway, that it demonstrates that they have figured out from the first season those elements of the language they're going to carry forward and make characteristic um, of the show and, and emblematic of the characters. And, and you see how that um, uh, is beginning to gel at the beginning of season two. Yeah, uh, it it does feel a little more refined here. I, I remember at the beginning of season one, there was a lot more of the sort of valley girl speak. Or it, there, it, it yeah. seemed like there was going to be a lot more of that valley girl kind of speak, and, and fortunately that fell to the wayside. Well, there were a couple of things that fell to the wayside. I, I'm not um, the Buffy scholar. Some people are in terms of, you know, uh, all, all of the borrowing it does from other television. But obviously it was doing an after-school special sort of, uh, pair uh, in its openings and closings in, in season one. And there were some things they were trying out and, and decided weren't really relevant to the show. And, and I think that they established that thematically in when she was bad too. I don't know how you feel about it, but um, you know, I, I'm struck when I rewatched that episode, how much it has to say about the second half of season six and season seven, when Buffy is overwhelmed by, a sense of responsibility, where she becomes uh, a sort of general, uh, uh, resisting the initiative of her troops. Uh, she has to be the sole leader, and it's a great—it's a great burden. Of course, it's a burden for other people too, because they begin to resent the way she's behaving later on in the series at the very end. Um, but but you can already see how burdened she feels, and when she was bad, um, uh, and and it's quite touching if you've seen the whole series. I think to to realize that that line in the arc is already developing as early as, as um, 1997. Yeah, I've talked with uh, some of my previous guests about how much, um, how surprising it was all of the, I call it foreshadowing, that uh, season one and now the beginning of season two uh, provides for later seasons. Obviously not all of that was was explicitly like foreshadowing. They didn't necessarily know where everything was going. They've just right. pulled, they've pulled it back in later seasons. But I feel like there definitely is, uh, like uh, Whedon is demonstrating his gift for foreshadowing, for planting seeds, specifically in when she was bad. Like there's the whole, you know, Buffy telling Angel to, you must have wondered what would happen if we fought. Come on, kick my ass. That's clearly setting up the end of this season. Well, it is, and it's also a really um, interesting. Well, because it's still it's still very much a teen show. Then it's a, it's a very interestingly sexual moment. Yeah, um, and I'm taken aback by it sometimes when I watch it because then he reminds her that she has more important things to do than to challenge him. But but uh, she's uh, already engaging in this arch um, and um, sort of subversively romantic relationship uh, with him, flirting. Uh, by fighting, uh, which of course is what a slayer, what a slayer would do, I suppose. But, but 
when we, when we think about the foreshadowing you're talking about, I give the Whedon team a lot of credit for uh, you know, not, as you say, really, even if they planted the seeds, knowing how they were going to grow, right? But but they very effectively read their own work from previous seasons and figure out how to extend that forward in a, in a gripping way. And a lot of a lot of folks who've done or tried to do long form television haven't been able to do that as well. Um, and the classic instance is pre Buffy, and, and Buffy wouldn't be possible without it. But but David Lynch stepping away from Twin Peaks and mm -hmm. effectively reading his own season one during the developing season two that was a huge mistake because because things just started to fall apart and the opportunities available in the first season uh, weren't capitalized on. You don't see. You don't see Whedon making that same that same mistake, and, and that's got to be to his credit, and, and uh, certainly contributes to the series' success. Wow, that's a good point about Lynch and Twin Peaks. Yeah, um, thank goodness Whedon stayed involved. Well, he was directly involved through five, and then he was—I mean, he stepped back a little ways in six and seven. But well, he, he did. But you know, this is this is just probably by accident. I don't want to fault David Lynch for this too much, but. Clearly, Whedon uh, had a lieutenant in, in Marty Knoxon, especially. Right. right yeah. um, he could count and who really knew uh, what was going on in the series um, and, and was invested in it. Um, maybe not as its auteur, but as a sort of uh, sub auteur. Um, uh, and, she, and she did, and she and some of the other writers who, well, I think that some rusty on this compared to other people I know, but I think she ended up running the show, right? I mean, she was the showrunner. Yes. Yeah, couple she... of Yes, she was. So, yeah. yeah, exactly. So, so you know that she really understood what had happened during the previous five seasons and took responsibility for continuity and bringing the thing to a close um, plausibly, and deserves a lot of the credit too. Yeah. Um. All right. So on a on a larger spectrum. Uh, well, how often have you watched this series? Like, when was the last time you revisited these two episodes in particular? Was this sort of a refresher for you? Or? Yeah, no, it, it was a refresher for me because I've been writing about other things. And I do, um, I wouldn't say I rewatch the whole series every year, but I have rewatched the whole series several times um, since 2003. Um, and uh, a little bit less so with Angel. I rewatched Angel a couple of times. But no, it wasn't fresh in my mind. I, I, I took the opportunity. We're on spring break here, right? So, so I could get the kids off to uh, their day camp uh, and then go back home and sit down and watch the episodes we're talking about right now so that they were fresh in my mind. Um, and it's such a pleasant experience. Um, always, you know, you think it's a, I have that feeling with other television shows too, but, but there's, a lot of, there's a lot of really great stuff. Um, in uh, in uh, when she was bad, I'm a little less enamored of, uh, of uh, some assembly required um, as a storyline anyway, and it is it is off the arc, um, an annoying tendency of the first couple of seasons that, that gets remedied a little bit better as they go on. But think of the humor in uh, when she was bad, some of which I had forgotten. I mean, I really hadn't remembered that. That scene where Giles and, and Principal Snyder are walking down that college <laughs> at Sunnydale High School. I did, this just slipped my mind, but I laughed aloud. I was so happy to see it again when, when Snyder is talking about how much he distrusts uh, uh, high school kids. And, and uh, Giles said, you know, that must be a really big burden. 
for <laughs> you as a high school principal, maybe that isn't your natural uh, calling. And Snyder continues to talk about the sexual habits of, of teenagers while in the background, Giles and, and Jenny Callender uh, make contact and start talking and, and moon over each other, especially Giles mooning over Jenny. And they, they turn to walk away uh, to the faculty room. And, and at that moment, he's been talking the whole time they've been talking. Armin Shimmerman, playing Principal Snyder, lets out with, it's like I'm talking to myself. <laughs> but it's this great, it's an amazing performative moment. Just as later in the episode, uh, and I'd forgotten this moment too, uh, he's talking about how he just he, he just has this this ability to smell trouble among kids. It's like a sixth sense. And no, no, was, actually, that would be one of the five. <laughs> That's right. And there's something so really witty writing. The one the one that I did remember, the really resonant line, um, is in the. Uh, in the denouement, you know, when, when you think the whole thing is over and Buffy is safe, but the anointed one comes back to look at the bones of the master and says, I hate that girl. Yeah. You know, and that, that one I had remembered as a moment of, of, uh, of great writing in that episode. Uh, first, because we thought we had got out of the episode before that happened, and then second, because uh, uh, he just, uh, whoever that kid was, I forget the actor's name, really delivered that line uh, the way it needed delivered so um yeah that was definitely a laugh out loud moment for me snyder's whole abhorrence of children um <laughs> which uh it was nice to see I, I loved the fact that snyder was introduced the way he was introduced in season one um he was played up like he was planted as a red herring to be the villain in the episode that he popped up in um which i believe was a, a puppet show um, and then he was just always kind of in the background or in the periphery. And every time he would walk into a scene, there was just something vaguely sinister about him. So when she was bad, I feel like is the first time we get to see him as, as a, like purely a comic character. Yeah. Which is a nice note. Although then later on, he turns out to be just as bad as we thought he was. Well, yeah. Yeah. Season, we haven't, we haven't come to that connection yet because that's part of the faith and, and mayor and, and, and uh, a huge apocalyptic monster story of of, uh, of season three, but uh, but yeah, he is he is actually quite refreshing um, at this point. Yeah, like locusts crawling around, mindlessly bent on feeding and mating. Oh man! Yes, boy, you've got the quotes right there. But no, I, I thought I thought it was just a brilliantly written episode. And there there are moments of that in some assembly required. Um, certainly, uh, one of my favorite moments uh, as I was rewatching it was. Um, when uh, uh, Cordelia's in the locker room and she's just been attacked and Buffy saves her and then she hears what's going on in the field, Cordelia does, and, and, and she says, uh, I have to go. I'm the apex. Yeah. Right? Make the pyramid, which is just, you know, an oddly funny line. That's how you measure your importance, obviously, <laughs> if, you're the, if, you're, if you're the captain of the cheerleading team. Yes. It's a pun... And it shows, uh, you know, the sort of uh, seriousness of, uh, of uh, Cordelia's Queen Bee uh, uh, role, her commitment to that role, and, and it's, uh, it's a great moment. It's interesting. Cordelia is an interesting character because the, the two episodes you and I are talking about, and then one of the two episodes that I spoke in last week's show 
Um, so three of the past four episodes <laughs> that I've discussed have featured Cordy as the damsel in distress. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. That's, that seems extreme to me. Yeah, it is. Um, I thought the same thing uh, when I was watching the episodes today and was finishing up uh, uh, some assembly required. And I thought, well, that's two episodes. And she's been, the exact term was, the damsel in distress uh, each time. And she is a damsel in distress in the future, too, in some significant ways. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, I don't know uh, sometimes how much that's supposed to be funny and how much that's supposed to be serious. It's difficult for me to get a read on what the writers thought they were doing. Uh, are they just using her as a convenient scapegoat? Do they think that it's some type of a, of a, of a morally uh, fair um, uh punishment for her. I mean, Xander certainly does. I think it's Xander at one point who, maybe it's Willow, who, when she says, why is this always happening to me? Somebody says, karma. Yeah, no, that's Xander. (laughs) Well, it's interesting that it's Xander who says it, because we take that to be, you know, his sort of cocky repartee, uh, but then, because they end up being in love with each other later on, um, you wonder wonder what counts as karma in this this series, but... uh, you know, that can be a joke and it can be a punishment for Cordy as she develops as a human being into something that's bigger than she started out. Um, but it's also tropic. And you can think, you know, maybe they're just making fun of the whole damsel in distress sort of thing. Damsel in distress from Westerns, which we know fascinate Whedon, uh, all the way into slasher films where somebody has to be. Right. Uh, interestingly, uh, turned upside down of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, that is not a blonde. Um, it's, a, it's a brunette uh, because the Slayer is the blonde person, right. and uh, uh, so they're playing they're playing with all of those things and kind of making making fun of the uh, of the device. Um, and I guess you can have it all ways. You know, it can be it can be uh, having your cake and eating it too sometimes in a television series. Maybe that's what they're doing. Um, yeah. Again, not sure how much of this was intentional. I mean, it's. I just wonder how much of Cordy's damselness in these early seasons, um, like how that speaks to her larger arc. We don't we don't have to discuss like where the character of Cordy is going in the long run, but she has quite a journey ahead of her, and she certainly does not end in any place that you would expect based on like her status in season one of this series. Yeah. Um, she also, well, and it's also true in other series, even in Angel. She is the odd, she's, she's somebody who needs to be redeemed a lot. It seems kind of unfair. I'm not sure, you know, that as a, that as a, a high school type, she's any worse off than the others, even though she's the high school type that uh, uh, most annoys uh, the, the hero and heroine, the Scooby uh, uh, gang uh, types in, in, in Buffy. And when she's an angel, too, she ends up having to be raised to uh, an elevated state uh, by magic, as it were, in order to be a plausible character. And and it does seem like the character carries a lot more weight than is narratively fair, if there's such a thing. And uh, and certainly, as you say, in season one, we would never have thought that she was the character who who was going to undergo those revolutions 
uh, of uh, persecution and, and, and redemption. She doesn't seem, she doesn't, well, and it is kind of funny too, isn't it, that while she goes through all of that, then Buffy keeps dying and coming back to life again uh, with, uh, with different types of consequences each time. Um, so they're in parallel to some extent, um, but I admit I'm not quite sure what the parallel means. So. Someone, I, re I read, um, I don't have it in front of me. I should have had this prepared, but someone just posted on some social media the other day, a theory, um, that Cordy was a potential, um, that Cordy had a potential to be a slayer. And because she is that now this is when she has left Buffy and she is on angel, her storyline over on Angel has her in a coma, has her kind of off of the playing board when the whole uh, when Buffy activates all the potentials. And yeah. if she had not been in a coma, this person theorizes that Cordy would have come into her own as a potential slayer. Huh. That is something we'll certainly never know. Yeah, that is. <laughs> it's a fascinating theory. I love that theory, but there's no way to ever like make that canon or whatever. Yeah, no, it's also it's also extremely uh, inefficient. The whole Slayer system, of course, is inefficient, which we which we discover uh, increasingly in the course of Buffy uh, with the Watchers Council and, and such. They're very detached and don't really know what's going on. A complaint of, of Buffy's all the time. But if Cordelia had in fact uh, uh, been a potential, uh, potential, then then why is it that every time Buffy dies, somebody has to come from far away? Right. Yeah. <laughs> Be an advantage to having somebody who was, in fact, already helping Buffy slay. Yeah. Who, would, who, if a potential, then could be the next slayer, and it just doesn't seem to work out that way. So, I mean, I don't know that 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 um, really refutes the the theory you just uh, expounded, but at the same time, it, it suggests that the the world of watching and slaying is. Uh, uh, is not a well-oiled machine. I mean, no, it's it's, it's got some bugs. Historic trappings, uh, you know, that, that you, uh, can't work out. Yeah, there there's some bugs that they could have worked out over the last couple of millennia or whatever. Yeah, they're right. Um, so <laughs> speaking of redemption and perhaps like unfair character arcs, I don't know. I I had never thought of Cordy in that way. That uh, narratively speaking, she has, she spends like the rest of her on-screen life being made to redeem herself for these early seasons. But so regular listeners of this show will know I have certain nits to pick with some of these characters, including Xander, who I feel like, and I want your take on this. I feel like over the course of the series, over the course of the long run of the series, um, Xander gets a pass on an awful lot of stuff. Oh, he sure does. Um, it, it's very annoying. And, uh, I don't know why the character develops as it does, but I am so angry with him whenever I watch uh, his response to Anya's death. That's, that's my girl. Well, thanks so much, Xander, for having me. Uh, because that's a really heroic effort on her part. Um, and not just in those final couple of episodes, but really you know, becoming human is a hard thing to do uh, for any demon. Uh, and, and Anya shows that she can do it and that she's on the side of the right. And Xander is not completely connected to her reformation as a human being through that whole season. And then he has this sort of paternalistic, you know, it, the way 
I mean, feminists out there must feel as I do. I like to think that I'm a feminist, so I, I can't own it in the same way that women can. But but you know, he owns he he appropriates Anya then in her death to his masculine perspective in a way that really uh, jars me every time I see it. Um, so I, I I agree. He gets passes when he shouldn't. And uh, by the end of the season, I, I actually feel a certain level of disgust for him. Uh, <laughs> but I did I would never have anticipated in season two. Yeah, he's... I kind of... Okay, maybe this is a strength of this series. Um, I'm, I'm certain that some people feel that this is a strength of the series. And one of my goals doing this podcast, this ongoing podcast is to, to check myself and check my reactions, um, that I've had over the years, uh, to this series and these characters and to find out if maybe I, I, I land in a different place by the end of all this than I had previously. But I struggle with a lot of the characters, like a lot of the heroes, a lot of our favorite beloved characters are characters that I have issues with. And, um, I, I've butted heads with the fandom at various points over some of this, but I feel like maybe this is a feature, not a bug of the series. The fact that these characters, that all of these characters are deeply flawed. Well, not just that they're deeply flawed. I put it in a different way. Uh, uh, they're, they're, they're deeply human. Yeah. Interesting. Even the ones who aren't human right. uh, end up being uh, pretty darn human. And, uh, you're right, we will have reactions to them. I think that that can be seen as a positive feature of the show, that, that we are uh, able to argue about the quality of the, the characters. Um, because you can't do that with a lot of television. Um, or it seems somehow trivial. One thing I've, I've rewatched recently is uh, How I Met Your Mother. Uh-huh. And, you know, I have, I have problems with those characters too, but I feel about them in the same way I felt about the characters in Seinfeld, a series I didn't even watch completely. But I remember watching, I remember watching the finale because <laughs> I wanted to see how it ended, and I was glad they got their comeuppance because I felt they deserved it. I mean, I had that feeling about them all along, but interestingly, they had become less valuable to me because of their predictable um, um, misbehavior. And, and maladjustment and, and selfishness. After a while, you know, I didn't have to see that anymore. And, and in some ways, I feel the same way about How I Met Your Mother. And of course, I'm one of those people who at the end of How I Met Your Mother was shocked by the ending and very dissatisfied uh, at the way uh, certain lines of the story were reinforced um, suddenly um, and in a way that uncomplicated the characters. You're not going to see... Uh, Ted Mosby grow as a result of his experience with with uh, Tracy, uh, the mother, uh, if uh, she dies and he boomerangs back to Robin. That's not that's not that's not a, that's not a growth arc, right? Yeah. Unless you that he somehow grew up into his original uh, sense that they belong together. And and when you're watching Buffy, when you're arguing about those characters, I think. Uh, you're arguing about them in an entirely different way, which is to recognize their humanity and to sympathize with them a lot over it. I can cry at anything. I call it crying for love. Uh, and, you know, we always have tissues handy. It can be uh, downright comedy, and I'll end up 
uh, because I'm so sentimental crying at, at something. Oh, I'm, I, I'm so glad you said that. I'm exactly the same way. I, I can do that uh, at points in How I Met Your Mother, too, but I find myself overwhelmingly moved at times when watching Buffy. And uh, that the way I'm feeling isn't really an endorsement of somebody's behavior. Uh, at that moment in the series, it's the fraughtness of it, just the way it's reminding me how fragile any goodness you try to discover or, or construct really is, and that we build and the things we build fall apart, and there are forces from outside that impel us, and there are forces from within that impel us to do the things that we do, and, and uh, you really see characters living through that. Um, in, in, in most seasons of Buffy. I mean, different people have their favorite and least favorite seasons. I see that less compellingly in season four, though I know a lot of people really like that season. So the Amark is not one that actually brings me uh, to tears over the, the plight of humanity. Um, <laughs> but, but season three does. Well, season, and, season four is almost the, like the plight of humanity is, is, is basically like humanity brought that shit on itself. <laughs> Well, that's yes. So that, and I find that less interesting uh, than I find uh, the final battles of uh, of season seven. And there are people who find season six a weak season, um, but I don't I don't find it weak in the way that it draws emotional response out of me. It, it's very evocative, um, even if you quibble with uh, the way the story is constructed or or something like that. At least that's that's the way I, I feel about the series. So. Um, so I think, getting back to the original point, I think you're right that we do have our strong feelings, sometimes negative feelings about some of the characters, um, but uh, not every not every show enables us to feel as deeply about characters as Buffy, and that's got to be a strong point of the series. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right. Let's try to dive into these some of the details of these episodes here. Um, so uh, speaking of a show that allows you to feel deeply for or about these characters. So um, I, I infamously carry some issues of my own about the character of Buffy Summers. And I wonder if this episode, like when she was bad, I wonder if this was a starting point. I don't remember on my initial watch, if I was like really upset with the character at this point, but uh, what do you think? Like, was this, was this a calculated risk that the show took to to come back from like in season one, we weren't even guaranteed that there was going to be any more uh, right. prophecy girl prophecy girl could have very well been the series finale. And so we come back, uh, we're given more and this is the Buffy that we get. How do, how do you feel about that? Um, I'm not bothered by the Buffy in, in, in uh, when she was bad. Um, I mean, obviously, she does some wrong things, and you'll remember that Giles says just that to yeah, her. Yeah. You, made, you, made, you made some bad moves uh, over the last week with, with your friends and in responding to this, but you'll do worse things than what you've done now, which is both true as a general observation of the transition from adolescence into adulthood, but also true of the way the series develops. But, uh, you know, th she, has to, she has a couple of really winning moments as badly as she behaves at times, and, and I was thrilled... Um, Again, as I am every time I watch the episode, when she uh, uh, ends up fighting the vampire as, uh, you know, that, that has interrupted Xander and, and, and Willow on their, on their evening walk uh, at the end of the summer, and, and you know, she kills the vampire, and she just turns her head around and says, Miss me? Yeah. 
you know, she's got her sense of humor. Uh, she, she's 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 still winning. The problem is whether, and I mean in her attitude, but I but her her problem is obviously that death is is numbing, and and the responsibility is numbing. And as I said uh, before, this is where I see her begin to realize why it is she didn't want this responsibility in the first place. Um, she knew from the beginning it was going to just be awful. And, and, and from a high schooler's perspective, ruined her life. And now she was kind of stuck with it. And uh, we see her repeatedly in that episode say, no, I'm going to take care of this myself. And then at, at one crucial point in the library, I say, I can't be responsible for all of you while I'm doing this. It's just too much for me to do. And and even though I don't like the way she's behaving at certain points in the in the episode, um, and it reveals some of the um, continually negative aspects of her character, um, I do feel uh, for her. I mean, it's uh, you know, it's part of the mythos of the show. It's a lot. It's a lot to carry on one's shoulders, and there she is, just just a high schooler. Yeah. I mean, the entire episode is about, well, I, you could, some people could make the argument that the entire series is about PTSD, but certainly this episode uh, is in some, to some degree, it's about sort of the PTSD that Buffy is going through. And like the final, uh, Cordelia's final moment as she's walking with, uh, with Jenny Callender and she's talking about, you know, that's the worst part is that this stuff stains. stays with you. Like you could, you could dry clean till judgment day, but those stains are never coming out. Of course, she's talking about clothes, uh, you know, metaphorically, she's talking about the stains, <laughs> you right. know, in your soul that you experience going through all this stuff. So. Yeah. And, 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 uh, you know, this is the prelude to the, the, Subsequent development, it comes up pretty soon. I can't remember exactly which episode when when Buffy finally relents and the Scooby Gang becomes officially the Scooby Gang, mm-hmm. um, and she realizes that she doesn't have to do it on her own. Uh, but why would you drag your friends into this? The, the thing is, the friends keep getting dragged into it anyway. So finally, she has to relent because it's a matter of their taking responsibility for themselves that they be allowed uh, uh, in on in on the game. But uh, but I so I don't I don't find her uh, you know particularly problematic in, in episode two. What do you have in mind as as being her her bad point? Uh, at, at well, point well, no, this is a feeling that uh, that built in me over the long course of the series uh, in general, and it was it was exaggerated. So I'm gonna. I'm going to deprecate, be self-deprecating over the course of this podcast and talk about, I'm fully aware that, uh, that some of my feelings about the show and the characters uh, were influenced by, um, I'll just call it the pushback <laughs> that I got from, you know, a select group of sort of diehard Buffy fans. Like I had, I had different opinions about certain things and the, the fan groups or whatever that I was involved in, like weren't here in that. Um, so, so a lot of my negative is too strong a word, but a lot of my sort of darker impulses about the characters in this series probably stem from that or were exaggerated by that, which is why I want to have you super fans and you scholars on as my guests to kind of hold my hand and walk me back through this series. Um, so this, this episode, it, like, 
I don't, I agree with you. I, I understand where the character's coming from in this episode. And I, I, I'm not particularly bothered by her. I just know that by the end of the series, I kind of am. And I was just wondering if this was an early, like, you know, if this, again, to use the term planted the seed of, of what would eventually become a frustration for me. Yeah, no, I think, I think it does. Um, because as I said earlier, she's already demonstrating that, um, that, that sense that she has to do it on her own, that she has to be in charge. Um, she is not, this is kind of an interesting point about Buffy. She demonstrates it in season seven. She's not a natural leader. Mm-hmm. When she's confronted with the whole troop of potential, she doesn't really, uh, at least initially, know how to lead the charge, how to get things organized, and how, and she makes a lot of sloppy mistakes. And, you know, it's very frustrating. But of course, I've never been a slayer, so I imagine it's a pretty difficult job. And, mm-hmm especially historically the, the, the premier slayer uh, and, and, you know, just more and more responsibility all the time thrust on her. Um, so I, I think you do see the seed of that here and you see also the, the um, numbed reaction. You know, I mean, this is a, this is kind of an interesting problem, isn't it? Because you say PTSD is true, but she has the same uh, response after once more with feeling. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, that, that distancing has to be, at least in the natural repertoire of responses, um, to those very traumatic situations. Oh, no. Their unwillingness, unwillingness to engage. And, and so on one hand, I see that as problematic. But on the other hand, I, I also see it as entirely natural and maybe even, even necessary. Um, but as I've written um, in a piece that's in collection called Buffy Goes Dark. Uh, the, the essay I wrote is called Buffy and the Death of Style. He really is reoriented as a character after once more with feeling which is so over the top stylish in every way, right? I mean, there's rhyme and there's, and there's singing and there's dancing and uh, it's uncontrollable and it's also very dangerous. But when Buffy comes out of it, she's not the quipster she once was and she's not um, using the slang that she's originated and maintained through the first six seasons of the show. Everybody else continues to use that slang, but she pulls back from it because now, you know, to put it in a nutshell, she's on a mission. She, she's distracted by the seriousness of what she's doing, uh, and it makes her um, maybe more morally grave, but much less stylish. And I think that one of the things that people are subliminally re- reacting to, if they don't like the seventh season, uh, and lead up into it is that Buffy's not as fun as she used to be, but then that's got to be thematically part of the story. Yeah, no, I, I think um, I think her behavior that that pulling back and all that stuff, I I think that's completely realistic, and it's certainly um, like her whole state of mind in season six, especially because we've seen her behave in a, a microcosm version of that in in this episode. I think it reads as completely like realist like like that's buffy that's yeah that that's how she so, responds to this kind of uh thing. So, so i suspect that one thing that might bother you um and may bother me a little bit is that it we see that she's capable of being me <laughs> and, and that's not that's not part of our hero heroine profile uh-huh. and and she's capable of being mean later on, too. She's mean to Angel. She's mean, although Angel comes back with a vengeance, so to speak. But, uh, you know, 
she's she's certainly mean to Spike, though Spike can give as, as, as good as he takes. Um, she's mean to Willow uh, later on, which seems so wrong. Um, so so that's that is a part of her character uh, that's probably. Um, not completely explained by the PTSD, but aligns with it in her physical ability. I don't even know what you call that device, but she's firing against that, uh, that um, you know, punching sort of mm-hmm. thing. And when she's bad, uh, and Giles is watching her, it's her first training since she comes back and she won't stop because she's seeing this vision of the master in her mind while she's punching the thing. And she manages just, just to break it. <laughs> But, but, you know, none of us could ever break anything that was built that sturdily, but she just, you know, breaks it. And, and I think that maybe the meanness and the anger um, converge at some points, and that's a element of her character. I mean, the, what, you're, what you're calling meanness, um, yeah, I, certainly that plays into it. Certainly there's an element of that. I, I could argue that all of the Scooby gang have their moments of demonstrating meanness, some more than sure. others, but they all go through that. Um, I, to shift gears well, just the tiniest bit, I want to ask, um, because you're talking about Buffy's ability to be mean or whatever in this episode, uh, we're ta- we're talking about two episodes, but in, uh, in when she was bad, we get, correct me if I'm wrong. Is this episode the first time that we see uh torture being used on a prisoner i am so glad you brought that up because i thought about that when i was re-watching it and you know it's so pre uh 9 11 you know mm-hmm. it's that's not part of what we're worried about there is no 24 on television or anything and so uh, yes, that is really shocking. Looking back at it from a perspective now, I looked at that and I thought that is just that's just wrong, right? But then you have to remember it's not another human being. <laughs> and that, that's that's part of the story. So so it does distinguish it from the type of uh, torture that uh, uh, Jack what's his name uses, Jack Bauer uses on, on Twenty Four, which is directed at other human beings with whom he disagrees ideologically, right, <laughs> as yeah. opposed. To, there's something different in in, 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 uh, in the Buffy story with vampires and demons who are who are after all agents of evil, not just people with whom uh, we don't share a worldview. Uh, I realize other people look at that and say, "Well, their worldview is evil," but I don't want to get into that argument. You know, there is there is there is the torture uh, there, um, and uh, you know that that's probably unforgivable. But the other unforgivable moment. Uh, is when she does that. She says that line to, to Xander on the dance floor. You know, I you know I haven't uh, apologized or I haven't um, thanked you yet uh, for saving my life. Don't you wish I would? Right. So it's just an, an amazingly cruel thing. And and I was, uh, you know, I knew what the outcome of the episode was going to be. It's what it's a great Willow Rosenberg moment because they're joking about you know how they're going to do. How, how that evening they're going to do something that's more exciting or dramatic than what they've done the night before. And, and Willow turns around and gives Buffy this absolutely radiant, yes. welcoming smile, which, which says that what she said to Xander wasn't unforgivable. But I was thinking at the time I was watching that, um, you know, Xander's not smiling that way. Willow's the one who's making that statement. 
Um, we're still not sure exactly how Xander feels about having been um, completely annihilated by that uh, by that by that question. And uh, you know, listening to the question, you think that's kind of an unforgivable thing to say. So they so they repair that relationship, but I find that a little artificial. And yeah, you're right. Between the torture and uh, the tendencies you see in, in, in those few interactions uh, in, in the episode, she does come across as capable of things we we don't want our heroine to be capable of. Well, I mean, eventually, over the course of the show, we'll find out that uh, the whole Slayer nature is rooted in darkness. That's kind of a big thing. Yeah, no, that's right. But but you know, we are you know, of course, spoilers aside, we are talking about these early episodes right. where one liabilities is that we've, we're walking we're, we're viewing it with certain assumptions about what it means to be the hero of a television uh, comedy drama um, comedy uh, and uh, uh, you know we go into that thinking that there will be flaws because there are always flaws but this will be a sterling character but we don't have that backstory and so I think we're judging her at this early point in the series by a different set of standards that um, you know, just have a lot more to do with the heroine movies and, and, and television and, and myths. And, and that sort of uh, talking about the sort of um, repairing the relationship between Buffy and Xander, that, that mean moment she has with him on the dance floor uh, and how it's Willow that seemingly sort of forgives at the end of the episode. In the very next episode, Some Assembly Required, um, and this is, a th- this is an artifact of like binging the show or watching the show, watching episodes back to back, watching it on a weekly basis. This might not have been an issue, but we go from uh, the dance floor sequence, the sort of awkward um, letting Buffy back, you know, everybody being friends again at the end of the episode. And then in some assembly required, there's the, it's played for laughs, but there's the line when they come in and to the library and find Giles rehearsing his pickup lines. <laughs> and uh, Buffy's like, you know, just some pointers. Maybe don't use the word idiot. Girls, you know, uh, most romantic interests are turned off if you call them an idiot. And Xander says, uh, I don't know. It kind of turns me on or whatever. And she looks up at him and says, you frighten me. They, that is a, that's a joke about Xander's romantic leanings. And they are standing super close to each other, like intimately close to each other when they make that joke. And taken just as a standalone episode, that's funny. You're laughing at Xander's, like, you know, desperate need for some nerd love or whatever. But following on the heels of immediately the previous episode, it was a little awkward. Yeah, and we're still not sure how all that's going to play out. We don't, we don't know uh, how serious Angel and Buffy are going to become, though at the end of some assembly required, we see them together. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, much more intimately, even though we've seen them before. Um, and so that story is developing a little bit, but there's always, it strikes me when I'm watching the first couple of seasons again, the intended suggestion that perhaps things will work out for Xander with Buffy. Uh, there's just enough of his perspective in the show, and then Willow is longing for Xander, and you see the triangular nature of it, and you think, I've seen this story before. Yeah. That's not, in fact, what happens, um, but it's still set up that way. So, so it is a little uncomfortable, but it's also uncomfortable with just a tinge of a tinge of possibility, mm-hmm. uh, as far as we know, just at the beginning of the, of the second season. Unless you're one of those people who believes that there's absolutely no way 
that somebody as uh, kick-ass as Buffy would ever be with somebody like Xander. But then you would say the same thing, wouldn't you, about anybody as uh, school cool as Cordelia ending up with Xander, and, and that certainly ends up being the thing. So, well, so, for uh, for a brief time, yeah. Well, I wouldn't have expected Buffy and Xander to stay together for the seven seasons, but, but we, we can imagine later on that their relationship would be complicated by some awkward moments earlier in the series, and in fact, that's not that's not what happens. But we just don't know that at this point. It, that that brings up a larger issue. Um, it, I don't. Well, I'm trying to think in the in the extended Whedon verse, not just Buffy, not just Angel, but like in in all of Whedon stuff, love has a hard time. Like relationships have a seriously uh, a serious uphill climb. And <laughs> but but specifically, like in the Buffy verse, I feel. And again, this is a, a thing that I'll get more into as we start talking about later seasons. But I feel like it's unfortunate that the this series was in a unique position to set up the like you just mentioned buffy is is the slayer she's like super strong and has this major responsibility and xander is this nebbish like nerd he's the normal guy and eventually over the course of the series he really is just the normal guy everybody else gets their thing yeah xander is always just the guy um and it's it's a little bit depressing that there aren't more opportunities or maybe any, maybe I'm, I might be forgetting stuff. I will say there aren't more opportunities that the show takes to have a lasting, uh, like, like effective relationship between a supernatural and a completely normal character. Yes, that's true. Um, that comes so late in the series that it doesn't really come to, to fulfillment. Although, um, you know, it's not as though Anya isn't thinking about it, uh, uh, you know, in season six and, and famously, and, and once more with feeling, it's that, it's that Xander doesn't uh, yeah. see the, and a lot of it is just, you know, unfortunately, a lot of it is Xander's fault. Uh, and I don't know what that means for, for normal people like me, you know, I mean, it is, <laughs> if people watching the series might be, that might be a little annoying uh, that all you have to be uh, either a player or a witch uh, or a watcher or somebody to have uh, a great romantic possibility and, and, and enduring love. And, uh, you know, it's really not the same to come out of the series, for, for Xander to come out of the series talking about Anya the way he does and, and um, Buffy having had not just Angel, who's still out there, uh, but Spike as well. Um, although obviously those are both very problematic relationships. Yeah. It's just, it's not, it's not good to be normal in, in, in the Buffy verse. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I mean, that's, yeah. As we get to the later seasons of the show where I, I'm going to have to bring this stuff up more and more, but anyways. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. And, and even though I have not studied them intensively, I, I have the graphic novels or at least the ones that are in, in library bindings so far. And, uh, you know, you can tell that that theme comes in again, um, although the terms of being exceptional change to some extent. Um, but, uh, um, yeah, because Dawn gets caught in that, too. Even, even though she's not normal in the way that Xander is normal, they do, they do connect in some ways. You'll remember later on in the yeah. series. They, they have a closeness that I think comes out of not being as special as the other people are special, 
and not having any way to overcome that, but at least Dawn is the instrument of something cosmic, <laughs> which, 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 uh, which uh, Xander, you know, he just doesn't rise to that, to that level of uh, importance. Well, he got to be a hyena once, so. Yeah, not my favorite episode of the show. <laughs> See, <laughs> <laughs> I, I I surprisingly like loved that episode on revisit, but anyways, um, something with the cameras. I'm not a camera person, but there's some way that they get Nicholas Brendan's face to look long. Yeah. It, it, uh, the angles they're taking it from, and he's got, and then the glowering eyes and stuff, and and uh, uh, you know he gets his one episode, but then it's over. It, it is better than the fish episode. I'll give yes. you that one. Yes. Yeah. Most things are. <laughs> um, so these two episodes both feature in in some format or another uh, the idea of uh, bringing someone back from the dead. And I thought they were interesting in that. So in the previous episode, there was the whole concept of undusting <laughs> a vampire, which is a thing that we get um, uh, maybe a couple more times, at least once more over the course of the two series, maybe a couple times, but I thought it was significant that um, this is uh, like, this is very much different than the, than the undusting that we get in angel, the series later on. Um, and it's also seems like it has limited app, like, you know, applications since it requires you to have leftovers of the dusted vampire, which typically doesn't happen. Yeah, not as not as I mean, that's other people have talked about that uh, development. Just the uh, the death of vampires changes in the course of the first couple of seasons, and uh, by the time you're in season three, it's a quick punch with a stake, and boom, it's you know it cannot be put back together again. Right. Uh, yeah, conceivably, but the. Clearly, they're toying, even if they don't know about it, as you were saying, even if, even if we give them an anachronistic reading, they're toying early on in the season with this problem of resurrection mm-hmm, yeah. and all that comes out of it uh, morally, uh, what the risks are, what you can't see about it. So you think you've killed the master, but you haven't killed the master because somebody can try to bring the master back to life. And in fact, that can happen more than once, we'll see, depending on what debris uh, is available. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, uh, you know we haven't at, at this point in the series we haven't got an inkling that Buffy can die again. <laughs> He's already died once. This is the standing joke later in the, uh, the series that uh, you know brings out that line and uh, once more with feeling, "Hey, I've died twice." Right. And, yeah. Yeah. You know, which is uh, kind of at that point a throwaway line. She certainly has, but but all that goes into bringing somebody back from the dead, and uh, you know. In this cosmos that, that Whedon has created, it is essential that they come back from the dead. I mean, it's, it's essential that Buffy come back, uh, as we discover um, by the end of the series. And yet, there's so much that is violated by doing that. It has to do with Buffy personally, but also just uh, you know, the metaphysics of the Buffyverse. And, uh, um, and they've, got the, they've clearly got this tick in their heads from the beginning of the season. I don't know. Be, I, I admit... I'm not one of those people who turns on the, um, the uh, commentary when I'm watching the show. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've never been very interested because I've been looking at things linguistically uh, more than thematically. I've never been all that interested in hearing what Joss Whedon had to say about his intentions, you know, mm-hmm. um, 
remember him saying in a Rolling Stone interview about the language that uh, he made it all up, which is just not true. You know, so uh, he's sense of, of, of what he's doing or his memory may, may be a little bit faulty about when he realized uh, uh, what he had a hold of uh, that was really good in the series. But um, it just seems in retrospect like they, they were maybe anticipating uh, the uh, developing problem of, of resurrection and redemption uh, later series. You know, they might have seen that as a thematic target, even if he didn't know how he was going to get there. And so some of these earlier episodes uh, um, are iterations of that theme. Yeah. Yeah. Um, again, these early episodes are sort of interested more in dealing with high school metaphors and monster of the week kind of stuff. They're not season two, uh, season two, definitely it builds a, a season long arc, but it's not thinking in terms of the long series uh, plot. I don't think. Um, but I just think it's fascinating that in their Frankenstein episode, the, the sort of the, the Frankenstein style of resurrection, the putting body parts together um, is we like we never really see that again we see adam in season four but that's a different that's a different beast that's a kind of a different thing but this is the most seemingly the most effective method of resurrection that i think maybe we ever see in the series because it's two it's two high school kids with a rudimentary science lab and apparently no like complicated black magic rituals or whatever they just dig up some bodies and slap them together yeah um, yeah, and it, and it seems to work. <laughs> yeah, it's a little implausible. As I said at the outset, it's not one of my uh, favorite episodes, and it's certainly not my favorite of these two, my preferred of these two, just because, you know, Frankenstein, the story, uh, has already been told, and it just seems a little bit uh, out of place, uh, except that, as you point out, there is a resurrection involved in, in bringing both um, the brother whose name is escaping me. but um, Daryl. Um, uh, that's right, Daryl, and then and then you know, constructing his his uh, bride. Um, uh, you know, I don't know that. that uh, I just don't find that uh, compelling in yeah. the way I find the, the season six Buffy resurrection compelling. Um, yeah. So no, I mean this this episode. There's there's not an awful lot about this episode <laughs> worth recommending. I mean, we do finally get. Um, Anthony Stewart had finally gets to do the in every generation speech, which he should have been doing since the very beginning. <laughs> yes, that, that's true. That's, that's a good development. And his relationship with Jenny calendar is a good development too. And there, right. there are some big comic moments that come out of that, not just having to do with Giles. I love the moment when he's turning away from her after, you know, he's been trying to ask her out, can't do it. She asks him out effectively. And he, he mutters in his understated way. Well, I think, I think that went well. Um, though it's not really in the end of the matter of his agency. And then I love that moment, too, when they're supposedly on their date, and, uh, uh, well, they are on their date, uh, and, and they supposedly wanted to be theirs alone, but Xander and Willow uh, joined them uh, for the date. Of course. Uh, yes, and I think that, you know, it's something interesting about, uh, I mean, that gets us back to Principal Snyder's attitude about, about students. Um, there is a... There's a smile on Jenny's face at that moment, and we don't, we don't, of course, know where the Jenny story is going and what her actual relationship uh, to um, events in Sunnydale is. But um, 
she 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 kind of likes the fact that Giles isn't strong enough to shoot him away. You know mm-hmm. that that he loves his students in a way that uh, that uh, uh, Principal Snyder you know alternatively hates them yeah, with the same sort of intensity. Right? And uh, uh, as annoyed as he can be with them at times, uh, he he really accepts them for who they are as people quite quite gracefully, uh, and that's necessary for the show. I mean, otherwise, uh, you know, things wouldn't be able to work at all. In, in the watcher Scooby relationship, but uh, it's really kind of touching to see. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Love Struck fumbling Giles is adorable. Um. <laughs> well, and it's in keeping with the the series emphasis on uh, strong women, right? Uh, that Jenny had the upper hand, um, and that that's not just in terms of constructing the relationship, but in a sense, um, the the awareness of what's going on. You know, just her recognition that. He has these qualities. She's noticed them in him. He hasn't necessarily noticed them in himself. They're what's endearing about him to her. Um, but she, she's, she's the superior being in that relationship, <laughs> at least, at least in that episode. Yeah. Um, I, I, I want to go back to. Um, oh, where was it? I just saw my note. Uh, again, I'm not really obsessed with foreshadowing, but I am going to talk about foreshadowing. Uh, these the um when we get the story when I, now i can't remember the other brother chris i think chris is the the living brother um he's telling the story about when he first brought uh his brother back when he first brought daryl back uh daryl's comment upon waking back up was that you shouldn't have brought me back and there even though we don't get more detail than that there's definitely the implication there that uh you know that Daryl was like, you shouldn't have brought me back to life. You shouldn't have pulled me back into the real world. You shouldn't have pull, right. pulled me out of heaven, perhaps, if that's what's going on. And, right. and I mean, obviously that is a, a theme that becomes very significant in later seasons. Yeah. I mean, again, I think that, I think that they're playing with that, that theme early on in, in these episodes. Um, I think that unfortunately with hindsight, not only do you see that they're playing with the theme, you also see it trivialized in this episode in a, in a strange way. Um, um, maybe uh, in season uh, five, season six, uh, the writers were thinking, gosh, I wish we hadn't done some assembly required. <laughs> because we're looking for um, a, a more difficult morality and a cosmic significance for this that is somewhat undercut by uh, the foolish nature of that earlier episode. But uh, as I said, I think that, you know, they probably had that thematic target out there, that they knew that, that was something that, that death and destruction, uh, resurrection and redemption, uh, they were going for those big overarching themes and uh, they just didn't know how they were to get to them at that point. And so uh, we could see this as a little premonition, but probably also a misstep. Yeah. Um, it's also so I, I've only got one more thing that I want to bring up and then and and let me know what this what this says about me or, or how you feel about this. Um, this is like another early installment in the either geeks are or geeks build monsters sort of subset of Buffy <laughs> Vampire Slayer episodes. Again, there are elements of this that I struggle with going forward, but uh even this early in the series, we've had multiple examples now of the the geeks or the outsiders, which theoretically 
is what our heroes are. Like our, our, our main character, the Scooby gang are the geeks and the outsiders technically, but so often it's the geeks or the outsiders that are set up as some form of the antagonist, or they are responsible for the, the, the villain of the week or whatever. And this, this kind of becomes a sort of mini cottage industry within the larger series itself as it goes along. So what do you think about that? How do you feel about that? Um, I don't know whether I count as a lifelong geek, but I've certainly been a lifelong outsider. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, it doesn't, uh, <laughs> I guess I'd say it doesn't bother me because uh, some of the geeks are so bad. <laughs> that includes, that especially includes not the true science geek, uh, the brother Chris. Uh, the, that other character, whose name is also escaping me, I just watched, watched the Well, his name is Eric, but you could call him Igor. Well, you could call him Igor, that's right. Um, but uh, but he's not the person who's following. He's the person leading, and he's leading uh, with a sort of uh, terrorist glee that we were worried about Buffy having in the preceding episode, which he yeah. puts across the vampire's throat, right? I mean, he's really uh, an evil character. So I guess you have to uh, decide in your mind whether... That's just so outrageous that it doesn't affect your own geekhood, or whether you see that as a really uh, 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 unforgivable slight against geekhood. That he would be so, he would be so evil. But later on, with the Troika too, uh, you know, who can be very endearing uh, at moments, um, they are nonetheless, you know, doing such awful things that I don't, I don't personally associate that in the end with their geekdom. I associate that with their evilness. So for me, that's a distinction I kind of make in my in my head. And and also, if I can say, because because Willow's a great geek, right? I mean, remember remember that when Ted is going to help her with new computer components, the comment, um, you know, she comes out with this weird sort of high pitched uh, uh, giggle, uh, and, and Xander interprets that as uh, her geeker joy. Uh, so we've got we've got a countervailing geek who, until she takes drugs, basically, yeah, uh, yeah. lively good character though, though a geek. Yeah, no, I mean, the very nature of this show is that all of these uh, sort of r- real world traits are exaggerated. I mean, clearly the reality of this show is heightened, uh, so I get that. But I just my perception, having never gone back and rewatched from the beginning my memories of of having seen the show once through before and then revisiting episodes like once at one at a time uh is that this is sort of a a trend that the series follows there i remember there being multiple examples of like the the nerd or the outsider or the shy kid being the one who in one way or another is uh, responsible for, or or just directly is like the bad guy of the story, right? And, and plotting, plotting to take revenge for having been been yeah. put in the outside position. But that, I mean, it's it's actually I'm glad you brought it up because I hadn't thought about it quite this way before. But the show provides you with an alternative, which is that when you're on the outside, um, you can fight on behalf of good, um, or at least protecting people, or you can get up into a tower. Uh, in a moment of self-absorption, <laughs> threatening to shoot a lot of people, you know, right, yeah. episode that, that couldn't air at the time it was supposed to air just because of, um, not just because of, but because of uh, school shootings. It yeah. was kind of a 
culturally resonant and horrific episode, but that that, that type of outsiderdom has an alternative uh, represented in the Scooby game. Um, and and what I what I notice about the examples um, that you're bringing up and that are coming to my mind is that, is that the people who are denigrated as, as geeks are people who tinker with things. And there are better things to do with your time in this story. In other words, I think that maybe the contrast that's coming to my mind now is that there are some people who spend their nights in graveyards and there are some people who spend their nights in the basement um, behind a door that says, as it does in some assembly required, you know, keep out. Um, this is my secret lair. It's a type of Frankenstein boy cave uh, down here where um, there's something sort of uh, <laughs> self-pleasuring going on, um, <laughs> making this thing uh, from this sort of private motive. Uh, but, but that's not, I mean, you have to make choices in this life and, uh, and uh, getting your, your revenge by uh, tinkering with something in the basement. Um, that's one type of geekdom. And, and geekdom is elevated uh, in the heroism of the Scooby gang. Um, that, that seems to me, you know, a deliberate contrast of, you know, people who are, who are really on the inside always think there's only one type of geek. But actually, there are many types of geeks. And right. <laughs> one of those geeks is wasting its time, and one of those geeks is saving the world a lot. Uh, and uh, there's a big difference between those, those two things. Yeah. Well said. All right. Um... Is there anything else that you want to talk? We've covered, I think, most everything that happened in the episode, but was there anything that you wanted to say or anything that we missed out on? No, I don't think that so much. It's just the experience of watching two episodes. Uh, you know, it makes me want to go back and watch more. This is just an endlessly gripping and moving series. Um, so I'm so glad that you're talking about it in this detailed way over time. It's the, you know, so that so that people people can indulge their their interests in the various episodes, uh, sure, but also because it, it drives us back to the series again, which is you know a good thing. We ought to be watching more. Agreed, agreed, and thank you so much for uh, for joining me. And you're in luck because there are plenty more episodes to come, and uh, not not every slot has been filled. So you are absolutely <laughs> invited to come back. Um, what? I would be delighted to come back and talk about some other episodes because uh, any excuse to watch the show is fine with me. Uh, and uh, it's, you know, I'm watching this as you are. You, know, you mentioned earlier uh, getting old. Um, yeah. I was a theatric when I first watched the show. I mean, I was in my late, late thirties. Um, and uh, so I had a perspective on it that was probably different from teenage viewers of the show, I suppose, at the time, or college-age viewers, but uh, it's been a long time, right? I mean, yeah. it's been uh, uh, 15 years now, and I'm a slightly different person, and uh, you know, had kids, been married and had kids and such. Uh, after the fact of watching it the first time, my relationship to the world and its themes is much different. So I think going back into these episodes, I, I begin to see things uh, and to feel emotions I didn't feel the first time around. So... Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's so rare that a television show uh, can sustain uh, that type of watching and rewatching. Obviously, one of the shows that does. Absolutely. And that's one of the things I'm most looking forward to is being a, a totally different person now than I was the, on first viewing. I just want to see if that changes my appreciation of the yeah. show. So. Yeah, I think it probably will. Well, you're a lucky guy. You've got all these episodes to talk about in the future. So I wish you, I wish you luck with the, with the series and have me back if you want to. 
Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, so I, I always give my guests an opportunity to uh, put themselves out there. If you want to be stalked by people online, is there a way people can do that? Or do you have anything that you want to, you want to pimp any new uh, books coming out or anything? No, I don't have anything coming out immediately and I don't have much of an online presence. So people are going to have trouble stalking me except at my university address. But, but please don't do that because I get a lot of university email. And, uh, uh, but if by chance you're somebody I already know and you want to get back in touch, uh, feel free to contact me and uh, we can talk Buffy or whatever else. All right. Well, God bless you, my friend, for not having an online presence. I really don't. I've resisted it. I don't, I don't even have, well, believe it or not, I don't have a smartphone. That's probably going to change just to, you know, have a handy calendar and, and keep in touch with my children who are currently eight and five years old. As they get older and they have phones of their own, I'm going to want to be in touch with them. But I just have an old flip phone. I, I had a I had a flip phone that was on a 2G network, and 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 uh, the carrier went up to a 3G network, and they they sent me for free a new flip phone. <laughs> and and my, my 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 suspicion is they thought I was some 80 year old guy. Who is going to be completely cut off from the world if they didn't send them? But mine may be the only phone they made in that series. You know, because everybody else had moved on by that point to smartphones. But uh, but I find it sufficient to my purposes. So I don't get distracted easily. So that's awesome. That makes that makes me think of Cordelia's like gigantic cell phone that she pulled out in i think maybe the first episode i don't remember yeah well they were a lot bigger back then and uglier although that was an important accessory uh, for for her but you know i've got to say by the time angel is wrapping up she's not looking at that phone very often yeah yeah all right well again michael thank you for joining me and uh thank all of you at home for listening you can find links to this and all of our past episodes at the website conswithdead.com or you can subscribe to the show on iTunes. And while you're there, uh, please rate us or write us a review. Turns out there are a couple other Buffy podcasts out there in the world. Who knew? Um, and any kind words you could spare would really help us stand out from the crowd. Uh, if you have questions for me or any of my guests, or if you'd like to share your thoughts on anything that we've discussed, please join the conversation. You can drop us an email at conswithdead at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at conswithdead or reach out to us on Facebook at, you guessed it, facebook.com slash conswithdead. We also have a Facebook group, which is where I'm hoping uh, like the larger conversations will continue. I'll, I'll try and post relevant questions that come up in these episodes or whatever, and we'll, we'll get uh, a large group conversation happening there. And that's um, just because I can't use the word conversations enough. The Facebook group is conversations with conversations with dead people. <laughs> Uh, so join up there. Um, next time I'm going to be joined by Teresa Fortier, who's the founder of supportspike.com. Uh, she's coming in to discuss, unsurprisingly, episode 203, School Hard, which introduces a certain uh, character, as well as 204, Inca Mummy Girl, and 205, Reptile Boy. So until then, Gur Arg, everybody. Gur Arg. When it's cold outside